Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it seems like it seems like all of life is like you're just always starting in the middle. And I think a lot of the the the, the challenges uh, of of seeing uh, life clearly, seeing having clarity, is is taking a bunch of steps back, because. On the one hand, while they say context is everything, and that's true, you can't understand really anything unless you understand the things around it. At the same time, though, if you're sort of like just trapped in the context and you can't see um, the, in, the entirety of the picture beyond the context itself, then a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll never know where you are. So um, that might sound very, very abstract. Let me, let me just try to make that make more sense. So, so in other words, one of the things that keeps on occurring and, and, and reoccurring to me is just the idea that it, it just seems completely logical and like um, even mandatory that there is a world and that we're alive in it and everything like that. And that all the things around us are just the things around us. And of course there's a sky above and a, and a ground below, and, and arms that flank our torsos, right? But, but why? Why? Why is any of that the case? Why, and why does any of that have to be the case? And then when you begin to sort of like realize that nothing has to be the way it is, then all of a sudden you get this sort of like delightful perspective of what actually is there in front of you. And you're able to appreciate things and maybe, and I mean this in the most positive way, take advantage of things in, in the best way or even in ways that are actually re- required for us to do. So, so, one of the kind of ways of kind of just uh, approaching this thought is the, just yesterday, this, this past Shabbos, we had two large events that, that, that happened simultaneously. It happens some years, it doesn't happen every year, but it's not, I don't know if it's a rare occurrence, but, but whenever it happens, it's very, very striking. Which is, we read Parsha's Bishalach, which is kind of like the Parsha just that's crammed with miracles, the two biggest being the parting of the Red Sea and uh, manna coming down from heaven, right? Uh, so that's, those are, would be called open miracles. And then at the same time, yesterday was also Tubishva. And Tubishvat is is the 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 new year for trees, for fruit bearing trees. It's actually interestingly, it's a financial holiday. I don't know if everyone knows that. And what what that means to say is it's a it's a it's a demarcation in the year when you have to start tithing, meaning giving ten percent of the fruit from your trees. So so in other words, in other words, you have to you have to have a start date for when 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 um, the new fruit counts as quote-unquote new fruit, right? Because otherwise there would be sort of like a sliding scale. When is, when is the fruit called new? So you have a financial fruit holiday in the calendar, which is Tuvishvat, the 15th of Shvat, because that's really when the tree is going to, that's when the sap in the tree starts rising up and the trees start getting going. So that makes a, a, it makes a lot of sense to make that the sort of like the starting line. Okay, so it also is the starting line in terms of orla, meaning to say that there's a mitzvah in the Torah that you have to wait three years before you can enjoy the fruit from a tree. 
So in other words, the first three harvests from a tree, you don't have, you're not allowed to eat from. But then, starting with the fourth year, you're allowed to eat from that. Um, so uh, again, when would that year start? Would it start when you planted the tree? And the answer is no. It starts on Tubishvat, which means that if you, if you plant a tree the day before Tubishvat, the next day it's considered a year old in terms of in terms of Orla, counting toward the three years. Right? And while we're on the subject of Orla, I'll just tell you my favorite thing about Orla because I just love this halacha. I always say this to people, um, or often when they if they move away from the community. Um, uh, but but I love this. It's a, it's a it's a question in halacha which is and this is a, a, a fun one to discuss if you ever want to, like something for the Shabbos table or something like that, you can ask this question, get people's opinions. The question is this. Let's say you have a fruit tree and it's gone through the three-year cycle and now, you know, you can actually eat the fruits from this tree, right? And then you pick it up, you dig it up, and you move it to a new location, the question is, do you have to wait three years all over again? That's the question. So you can discuss it both sides. And the answer is, it's a great answer, it depends. <laughs> so so it, it could be that you have to wait three years all over again, or it could be that you can start eating the fruit right away. So then the next thing is, is what does it depend on? So then this is really the point of discussion. What would it depend on? Why wouldn't you have to wait? Right? You could understand why you would have to wait, because it's been dislocated from its previous location, and now it's kind of like a new tree. tree. But why wouldn't you have to wait? What, what are those circumstances? And the answer is, and it's, I, I love this answer, is if you bring enough dirt with it from its original location to the new location, then you don't have to wait and you can hit the ground running. So whenever I, whenever there are beloved people from the community who are leaving, I always say that over and, and I bless them that they should bring all the love from this community with them to the new community so that they can just hit the ground running in the new place. Right? And that should be for all of us in our lives. All the moves should be blessed and holy and beautiful and everything. So... So again, the idea is that you have two things intersecting on the calendar that, that happened yesterday, which is this idea of open miracles, the splitting of the Red Sea, Parsha's Beshalach, right? At the same time, it's the new year for trees. Trees are the most natural, logical thing in the world. Like, like it seems like the opposite of a miracle. You, you take a seed, you put it in the ground, you water it, there's sunshine, you care for it and a tree comes up. Okay, so makes sense, right? Except it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Trees are <laughs> totally miraculous. They make no sense whatsoever. The example that I always like to give is that if, imagine you're writing some notes you know, with a pencil in one room and then you put the pencil down and then you go to the other room and you come back and there are large grapefruits hanging off your pencil, right? You would go, ah, it's a miracle, what just happened? This is like a, unbelievable. Like, normally speaking in nature, children look like their parents in, in some way, 
there's usually a resemblance, right? Or grandparents, right? But how does a juicy orange resemble a piece of wood at all? <laughs> there is literally no connection. There's no connection in color. There's no connection in texture. There's no connection at all. How did that come from that? It makes no sense. Out of a piece of wood? Right? So, so a tree, if you think about it, especially a fruit tree, it's totally miraculous. But God plays a trick on us, which is he does these things in slow motion. And because these things are done in slow motion, it seems like, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. But again, if you just stop to think for a moment, you realize, wow, none of that has to happen. And this brings us back to the initial thought. The idea that sometimes context is necessary, right? But sometimes context blinds us to the bigger picture that nothing has to take place, that everything is actually miraculous. And so the fact that you have on one day, Shabbos yesterday, this holiday for trees, fruit trees, which is one form of miracle, which we call nature. And of course we have the, the classic explanation of, of nature is our miracles that you've gotten used to. Or even if you, if you want to put an even more harder spin on that thought, miracles that you're bored with. How about that? Miracles that you are bored with. Right? You would think, how can you put the word miracle and bored in the same sentence, right? Isn't miracle the opposite of being bored? But but not not no. See, because human beings see, I saw something from Rabbi Kaplan and it just he, he talked about the, the role of the central nervous system. And we would think that that's to, to allow everything to, 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 to function. But he said that one of the jobs of the central nervous system is actually to block out information. Right? We would think, no, 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 it's only there to allow information to be absorbed and processed. No, and, and the example that they give is that, imagine you lived in, say, New York City or a place like that, and you were able to have a clear, vivid memory of every single face and every single person you pass by just on the street, in the subway, and on the sidewalk going to the office, you would literally go insane. You would literally go insane. It's too much sensory bombardment. So to a certain extent, <coughs> the central nervous system is there to block out stimulation, right? So it is, getting back to the idea, there is sort of like a um, survival mechanism, coping mechanism, built into our humanity, which allows us to become bored by miracles. <laughs> right? Because if people's minds were endlessly blown by like, just, you mean I have fingers, I have toes? Like, you'd be totally immobilized. You'd be totally immobilized. But, and this brings us to the, this next idea, which is that, well then, what is the relative of relative awesomeness between open miracles and hidden miracles then, or what we call nature, just the fact that the sun rises and the sun sets. Or I would say further, the fact that there is even a, a sun or an earth for it to rise or set against, right? And when you, when you start to think of it in those terms, I mean, you know, we would start off the conversation by saying, of course the splitting of the Red Sea is a greater miracle than a, than a, than a fruit tree. Right? Of, of 
course it is. But then when you think further, you go, wait a second, how do I even, how is there even a world? How is there even a me? How is there even eyes? How is there even a mouth? How is there even this thing called consciousness? And you realize that's actually a way greater miracle than splitting the sea. That God is doing like wild miracles way beyond anything we've ever experienced on a normal level. And that's going on right now. We're participating in that right now. So, so the Ramban says that anyone who doesn't say that every single moment is a miracle has no share in the, in the Torah of Moshe. So this is, this is a, an extremely, and I'm talking about mainstream, classical Jewish approach to life, to understand that we're in the midst of this whirlwind of miracles and that it doesn't stop. Just because you might think that, okay, well, this is very similar to what happened yesterday. But that's the other amazing thing. It's similar to what happened yesterday or a moment ago, but it's not the same thing because God is endlessly creative. And remember, every single moment is the culmination of every single moment that's happened up until this point, which means that by definition, no similar thing can actually be the same because it's the outgrowth of a whole nother product of of circumstances, even if it seems similar. So all these portals are opening constantly that are different even if they look the same. You know, one of the, one of the very cool things that I've, 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 I've learned, and I have to always try to apply this, is not to interrupt people when they're speaking. Because you kn- even though you know maybe the beginning, maybe you've heard the story, but you'll hear the story in a different way. Or, let's say you hear the story in the same way. What's the next thing that they're going to say? <laughs> like, the next thing that they're going to say might be something that you'll never hear again out of that person. Because even though it seems similar, it's not the same. It's a new portal to a new thought and new idea. Something else is happening. So... These are all like um, applications of, 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 these, of these concepts. Okay, so now we see that, that actually everyday life is more miraculous than open miracles. And, and this isn't sort of just sort of like, oh that's, oh, that's a positive attitude. You've got a positive attitude. No, it's, no this is what's happening. It's just a question of whether we are willing to have the expanded consciousness to appreciate it, you know? It's not a question about attitude. This is what's going on. Okay, so now let's take this further. I I, I learned this week from Rabbi um, Moshe Shapiro, Olav Shalom. He's just left the world and he's really, he's absolutely one of the greatest Torah thinkers in the world. And said something very, very interesting. I'm just giving you the the tiniest, tiniest uh, taste of it, which was about um, the first utterance of creation. And he was talking about the, you know, how, how, you know, it says in Perke Avos and our our holy tradition is that God spoke the world into existence. And we've learned many times that 
Rabbi Shlomo said God actually sang the world into existence, or as Rabbi Gedalia Fleer said, God prayed the world into existence. These are all different wild thoughts, and they all lead to deeper understandings of, of our lives. Um, but let's go back to this idea that God spoke the world into existence. So, so Rabbi Shapiro says that um, here's what most people think, and here's what not to think. Okay, and that, he says most people would think God spoke the world into existence, or God spoke His will, because the initial ten utterances of creation parallel the the ten commandments. Right, those two are uh, parallel each other, and of course the Ten Commandments contain all 613 commandments. Right, so that's the whole Torah. So most people think that when God spoke, what happened was God expressed His will, and then it's up to us: do we want to listen? Do we not want to listen? Preferably, we want to listen. Right, that that's kind of the status of what His speaking represented. But that's, but that's not that's not the case. It's it's actually far deeper than that. It's God created reality with His speech, and that that actually is the reality that envelops us, is His desire. So, in other words, God's will has been activated and penetrates all of reality and continues to work itself through reality until God's desire is accomplished. So there's a there's a Haftorah that we read on fast days. I'm going to just try to find it for you because it, it, it expresses this thought like just um, very, very succinctly, very, very beautifully. Let's see if I can just grab it. Here it is. So it says, For just as the rain and the snow descend from heaven and will not return there unless it waters the earth and causes it to produce and sprout and give seed to the sower and food to the eater, so shall my word that emanates from my mouth, it shall not return to me unfulfilled unless it will have accomplished what I desired and brought success where I sent it. And that's, um, that's from the Navi, the prophet uh, Yeshaya, Isaiah, um, chapter 55, verse 11. So listen to this again. So shall my word that emanates from my mouth, it shall not return to me unfulfilled unless it will have accomplished what I desired and brought success where I sent it. Meaning to say, when God spoke the world into creation, God activated reality around us and that it's an ongoing process that won't stop until God accomplishes what he desired to accomplish. See, let me, let me tell you why that's... I just want to make sure that we're communicating because this is a giant, giant, giant thought. It means that it's not like God created the world and said, you know what, I hope you're going to be a good person. I hope you do what I say but enjoy, have a good life, 
and you're in a neutral part of, so to speak, environment. You're in neutral land. Hopefully you'll do the right thing, see it at 120. That's not it. It's, this is not a neutral zone. That's, that's what this is saying. This is not a neutral zone. We're saying that this zone, this dimension that we're in right now, is created out of God's Word, which is working every single second. It's working and it's working and it's working, and it's shaping reality till it accomplishes what God had in mind. So the train is going. The question is, are you on the train or not? And that's up to you. Are you going to sort of like help to activate that? Are you going to fight against it? Either way, God's will will be accomplished. Just like the metaphor that the prophet gives, that the rain comes down from heaven and it waters the the plants. It doesn't come down and then halfway down goes, you know what? The new Batman Lego movie is out. <laughs> so the rain just takes sort of just takes like a right turn, you know, before it hits the ground, goes to the movies, then forgets it's supposed to hit the ground and water the plants. And then it evaporates. Oh, sorry. So that's that's not it. It's not it. So so this is a little humbling on, 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 on some regard, but anything that can allow you, the reason why I like this thought so much is because anything that can sort of like chip away at this notion that we're in this free zone, this neutral zone, where, where, where the reality is, listen very carefully, where the reality is in our minds, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't a God. In other words, we, we, so many of us make that what, what we would say is the defining reality. Not, I believe there's a God or there is no God. We create this new in-between zone in our mind and we say that's the reality. No one would ever articulate it like this, but just listen very carefully. Whether we know it or not, most of us walk around saying, you know what the absolute reality of God's existence in this world is? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> In other words, that's what it says on the Campbell's soup label. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And that's what a lot of us end up buying and purchasing with our lives. In other words, we have decided maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> that's, our, that's, our, that's our actual conclusion. It's a very schwach conclusion. It's not a great conclusion. See, because you need at some point some sort of leap of faith. At, at some point, you need it. And, and hopefully, hopefully, all the premises are not on the level of a leap of faith. Hopefully, all the premises you've explored and rigorously challenged and you have a body of life experience which will aid to your understanding and you say to yourself, no, I know this, I know this, I know this. But even if you say, I know, I know, I know, at a certain point, faith is always going to be part of the picture. It's just where in your spectrum of exploration and understanding will it enter in. See, the, the Mayor of Shemesh says this. It's a very deep thought. I, I hope I'm communicating, but we're going to explain it further still. There's a, there's a passage that we say actually every day in the davening, and we just said it this Shabbos. 
everyone wants to try to explain it because it's sort of like it's 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 actually almost alarming. It's 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 alarming actually. And we say it right before the we uh, we say the passage, the song of the splitting of the sea. So it says, Hashem saved on that day Israel from the hand of Egypt, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people feared Hashem, and they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe's servant. So they had faith, they had a Muna. It says, they had a Muna. Now this is after the ten plagues, after they're taken out of Egypt. I mean, there were so many miracles that they saw. So many miracles that we saw. And now by the splitting of the sea, now it says we had faith. Why, why now? So I heard one explanation, which I thought was very beautiful. I'll say it very quickly, but I want to get back to this idea of the indispensability of faith, the, the, un, the unavoidableness of faith. But why, why now? So one explanation is, is this, and it's, it's very beautiful, which is that when God took us out of Egypt, in some place in our hearts we thought, you know what, he owes it to us. He promised Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and he owes it to us. But when he saved us by the sea, we saw that, you know what, God really loves us. It's not just that he owed it to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. God saved us because he, there's a relationship beyond just owing, right? There's a, there's a relationship beyond it. He actually loves us. And then when we realized that God loves us, it opened up our hearts so much that we, that we were able to deepen our relationship with God from a standpoint of love. And that, that's, that, that, that's important, you know. Um, but let me get back to this other idea. So there was a, there, it says that when the, when the sea split, all the heavens split. And that even the, the, the most sort of like humble person, meaning to say in terms of, say, intellectual facility or whatever it is, even the most humble person among the people crossing the Red Sea saw a vision of God in heaven that was higher than Yechezkel, higher than the prophet Ezekiel. So in other words, we became a, a, a nation of prophets. And this is sort of like, was preparation for the mass prophecy that everyone was going to have a few weeks later at Mount Sinai, right? Mass, but not just we were like massive prophets, but massive prophets above Yechezkel, who has one of the primary visions of heaven that we still learn about till today. So just totally breakthrough. But listen to what the mayor of Hashemish says. Even with that level of certainty, because we experientially experienced, so that's a very deep knowing, heaven and God, still amuna, faith, never leaves the picture. Because God is infinite and we are ultimately finite. Remember, God made our brains. The great irony of intellectuals and sophisticates is that they turn it inside out. They say, with the brain that God created, with the brain that God created, they say, God can do this and God can't do that. <laughs> it's the biggest joke in the world. It's the biggest joke in the world. It's the biggest chutzpah in the world. I'm going to tell God, who made my brain, can I make a brain? <laughs> I can hardly make eggs. <laughs> like, God, who made my brain, then I use my brain to tell God what he can do and what he can't do, and then, you want to be ready for an even bigger chutzpah? 
I then use my brain to tell God whether he exists or not. <laughs> Crazy. Right? You know, Rabbi Green once said one time, and never left me, he said, oh, those are your eyes? That, that's your nose? That's, those are your eyes? That's your nose? Where's the receipt? Those are your hands? Those are your hands? Where's the receipt? They belong to you? Let me see the receipt. So, so, the point is, is that ultimately we're finite and God is infinite, which means there will always be a role for emuna. Knowledge can take you to, to a place that even goes past the Navi Yecheskel, the prophet Ezekiel. And yet, because of the infinity of God, there will always be a terrain beyond, 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 where Amuna, where faith will always play. So, and, and by the way, if you, so you, you realize that, that your Amuna, your faith is part of your, it's one of the most precious things that you have. It's one of the only things that you have. You have to cultivate it. You know, there's a very famous book out called The Garden of Amuna. And it's, if you think about it, it's a very beautiful title because, because a garden has to be cultivated. And Rabbi Wolfson puts it in another way, which I, I really love. He says, can you imagine you go up to someone, you ask them, did they, did they eat breakfast this morning? Did you eat breakfast? And you go, no, 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 I ate breakfast yesterday. What does that have to do with today? So amuna is something that, that it has to be cultivated. It has to be cultivated and you have to do it every single day because it's this organic thing that will, you know, it says, listen to this, it's a kind of a scary thought, but you have to know it. It says if you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. So you, a person has to cultivate it. And of course, the best way to cultivate Amuna, the best way, hands down, it's not even a question. You can, there's no argument here. Torah study. This is it. Number one. Number one, period. Torah study. Torah study allows us to see the world through the lens of Amuna. That's what it is. Because God is constantly adjusting and readjusting reality in front of us to create this, this playing field where God is preserving free choice. Remember, famous example, on an escalator. Imagine um, you want to go up a down escalator. Bless you. Imagine you want to go up a down escalator. If you just stand still, bless you, if you just stand still, you're going to go down. You actually have to exert some effort just to maintain your level. And then if you actually want to make some progress, you have to exert some, some genuine effort. So that's, that's, that, that's kind, of, kind of our marching order, so to speak, for, for life. If we want to really be connected and to, to actually be connected to, to reality in a, in a meaningful way. Now, I want to talk about uh, two let's call them fractals for now. So as far as I know, a fractal, if I'm using it properly, is it's a, it's a small thing that contains everything in it. So it's, it's um, 
So, so I want to I want to say like this because this kind of blew my mind that you can see in the letter Aleph. You can see a picture in the letter Aleph. And why am I focusing on the letter Aleph right now? Because the the celebration of the splitting of the Red Sea, the song of the sea, starts with the letter Aleph. It's called, in fact, when people refer to it in Hebrew, they call it Az Yashir, which means, and then we will sing. See, what's, what's amazing about that is it's in the future tense, right? Which is like, it's weird, because they sang that song after it happened, and yet they sang the song in the future tense. So what, what they say about that is that there will be <coughs> ten, ten great songs that will be sung, and, and that we're up to nine. We're waiting to sing the tenth song. And that tenth song will basically be when Mashiach comes, right? And that the ultimate amuna. That what we realized here, as the Mayor of Hashemish says, is we realized the ultimate amuna, the fact that faith never goes away and is always relevant. And he says the thing, the thing that a person needs the most faith in, right, is resurrection of the dead. Mass resurrection of the dead. <laughs> or what we call in, in, in Hebrew, techias uh, amesim. And believe it or not, that's not a bonus belief, <laughs> meaning to say, like, you get extra credit. You're very religious. You believe in Tachias Amesim. No, no, no. That's, that's right there. That's one of the core beliefs of Judaism. And so, for some reason, God blessed me that I don't have any problems with this idea. This, this idea is just totally delightful to me. <laughs> and, and, and even very logical and, and understandable. Um, so let me just give you a couple ideas because I want to get back to the idea of this Aleph of Az Yashir, this future tense. But it says that when the sea split, that basically we had belief that the dead were going to rise. In other words, like all the beliefs sort of got accessed at that moment with the splitting of the sea. And we saw all the way basically to the end in terms of understanding that the dead are going to rise. So what does that mean? So the Gemara in Mesechta um, Sanhedrin, uh, in, in the, last, the, the, the last chapter called Chelek, which has all sorts of like, wild ideas about the end of days, talks about um, you know, just logical approaches to understanding the Tachias the, Amesim. Uh, so I'll just run through a few of, for you, just so you see. By the way, we have, just to start on a very kind of scientific, modern level, we have today cloning, and cloning, you can get a fossil from some sort of ancient thing that doesn't exist anymore, and you can extract the DNA from it, and from that you can make, you can make the thing again. So we actually have resurrection of the dead right now. We have it right now. So, so the technology exists right now. The science of it exists right now. Um, on another level, the Gomorrah says something very beautiful, that you know, when you plant grass, when you plant a seed into the ground, and just imagine the parallel with the human body or whatever it is, but when you plant grass, a seed for grass in the ground, it's kind of, the seed disintegrates underground, and then life shoots up out of it, right? So if you think of it, this is the Gomorrah trying to explain it to us a couple thousand years ago. 
How many, how much grass is sprouted every single day? Trillions, trillions of blades of grass, conservatively speaking, every single day around the world. So you see examples of techias, it may seem trillions of times a day. They give another example, which we'll just stop with this, but they give many examples, and then they go into verses in the Torah that, that show you uh, where, it, where it exists as well. But, but anyway, they say, what, what is the bigger miracle to, or the, you know, like, like the harder thing to do, so to speak? Is it to create something out of nothing or to create something out of something? So obviously, the harder thing is to create something out of nothing, right? Only, only God can do that. In fact, one of the interesting things is, is that there's um, 39 categories of labor that we um, don't do on Shabbos. Okay, so 39 is kind of a weird number. Why not 40? So the explanation that I heard is that there is actually 40 categories. But you can't do the 40th category. What is the 40th category? Making something out of nothing. <laughs> only God can do that. So since only God can do that, you only have to worry about the other 39 categories. Okay? So, so anyway, what is the bigger idea? Making something out of nothing or something out of something? So obviously it's making something out of nothing, right? So when you were born, you were something that was made out of nothing. <laughs> so in other words, you already exist. Now to bring you back, to make something out of something? In other words, that's not that big a deal. The bigger miracle already took place, which is the fact that you were brought into existence at all. So making something out of something, bringing you back, well, God already made you out of nothing. He certainly can make you out of something. So this is, this is one of the logical, logical explanations that the, that the Gomorrah gives. By the way, can't discuss resurrection of the dead without saying the, one of my all-time, all-time favorite Torahs from the Kutzker Rebbe. So he says that, uh, by the way, the 22nd of Shvat, it's coming up. That's um, his yurt site. And also Reb Label Yeager also shares the same yurt site. It's coming up. So anyway, so he says, listen to this, something awesome. That it's a very big miracle to resurrect the dead but it's an even bigger miracle to resurrect the living. Right? To bring the living back to life, this is awesome, 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 awesome. And I'll tell you, I don't know if there's anyone who was better than that than Reb Shlomo. Reb Shlomo brought the living back to life, you know? And I would certainly count myself in that category. Um, so let's get back to the letter Aleph. So the letter Aleph of Az Yashir, so that's the first letter that's sort of like standing at the, the threshold of the splitting of the sea and all these things. But let's see how you can see the splitting of the sea in the letter Aleph. So this kind of came to me on Shabbos. You see, Reb Yitzhak Isaac Chaver talks about how the letter Aleph is basically, it's kind of like a map of the universe, right? So you have a yud, you have the letter yud on top, then you have diagonally the letter vav, and then you have the letter yud. So that makes that makes the letter aleph. Aleph is actually composed of three letters. A yud above on one side, a diagonal vav, 
and then a yud on the other side. Okay. And of course, famously, those three letters, remember Aleph is the number one, the first letter of the alphabet, right? So, and, in, and those three letters, Yud, Yud, and Vav add up to 26, which is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of Hashem's holiest name, Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, which makes sense since it correlates with the letter Aleph, which is one, God is one, right? So, a very, it's in lockstep. Okay, so Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says that the upper Yud stands for the the upper waters. And the lower yud stands for the lower waters. And the vav in the middle, the straight line that goes diagonally, that's the rakia, that's the firmament of the heavens, separating the upper waters and the lower waters. So remember, when God created the world, it talks about it on the second day of creation. It says God separated the higher waters from the lower waters. Okay, And very interestingly, you see all the things or many things are listed that God created during the seven days of creation. It never says God created water. Very, very interesting. There's a lot of Torah on that. Okay, but anyway, and I heard Reb Shlomo say that before that God, that on some level water existed before this world existed. Of course, God created everything, but that God took a mikvah before He created the world. <laughs> I heard I heard Reb Shlomo say that one too. Um, anyway, of course, God doesn't have a form, but it's, it's deep, it's deep. So, so this idea of the upper waters represents the miraculous. Those are the, the higher hidden realms. The lower waters represent those things that are revealed. That's more like nature, right? And so again, we're getting back to this theme of the miraculous and the natural, sort of like coexisting as one unit, right? So... So I want to say like this, that that diagonal vav, that straight line, is actually the staff of Moshe. And remember, Moshe lifted his staff, and, what, and God instructed him to lift the staff, and then what happened? The water separated. So there you see it in the letter Aleph. The upper waters and the lower waters are separated by this vav, by this staff of Moshe. So it's the first letter... That's sort of like celebrating the splitting of the Red Sea. And you can actually see it. Picture the letter Aleph. You see the staff of Moshe is splitting the water. It's like a dynamic, it's a dynamic depiction of the splitting of the Red Sea. But you can go further with it. You can go further. Because it says, the Gemara says that one of the reasons, or different explanations given why the sea split, one of the explanations is, is because of, in the merit of Yosef, Hatzadik, right? His, they, they had brought his bones out of Egypt. He promised, he said, a, re- a redeemer is going to come. You know, he understood that, that, that the Jews were going to be freed from Egypt. And he said, and I'm going to let my bones stay with you until you leave. I want to stay with you till you go. Remember, it's so deep. When Yosef went down to Egypt initially, he was the only Jew in exile. And Reb Shlomo says that to this day, to this day, we get the strength to remain Jews in exile because Yosef remained a Jew in, in Egypt. So can you imagine? He said, I'm going to stay with you. My bones are going to stay with you until you're freed from Egypt. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, so it says that when the sea saw the bones of Yosef, the sea split. 
And the way it was explained to me was, Rip Shlomo said over, that because Yosef was able to overcome his nature, because he was able to control himself in, 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 in circumstances that were like, the way Rip Shlomo said it was like a hundred lions tearing at him. Wow. He was able to control himself. Because he overcame his nature, the sea overcame its nature. But, but let's go deeper. Let's connect it back to the letter Aleph. In terms of the ten spheron, the sphera that Yosef connects, correlates with is Yesod. And Yesod is the sixth sphera, and six, the sixth letter is Vav. So now we get back to the Vav in between the two Yuds in the letter Aleph. Right? So remember, Aleph again, there's a Yud above, then there's the Vav that's diagonally across, and then you've got the Yud below. In other words, the upper waters and the lower waters split when they saw Yosef, right? Who's Yesod, which is the sixth sphere, which is Vav. So again, it's this dynamic the letter Aleph of Az Yashir, this dynamic design of seeing the splitting of the Red Sea. And there's another microcosm, perhaps fractum, that I want to share because we're finally leaving Egypt. And it's actually toward the end of last week's Parsha that you have this Pasuk. But I just, I just was really struck by it because, you know, you have all these Parshas leading up, and more, more than all these Parshas, I mean, more important than all these parshas leading up to us leaving Egypt is the fact that it was hundreds of years leading up to it. Leading up to this verse. You ready? Listen to this verse. How absolutely definitive it is. This is in uh, Shmos, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 51. It says, It happened on that very day, Hashem took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. Period. That's it. We left. We left. That's the, that. That's where it lands. That's... That's the verse that says, we're out. Okay? So I thought, wow. And first of all, it's, it's great because we know that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So there's a chunk of white fire before that verse and a chunk of white fire after that verse. So it's like cordoned off. It's a big verse. And I thought, wow, you know, that verse is so definitive. I got to count the words and the letters because... It's got to be that there's, there's going to be something telling about that, you know? So I counted up the letters. It says, it says um, I believe it's in the Zohar, uh, Rabbi Wolfson brings it, that there are 50 mentions of leaving Egypt in the five books. 50, or maybe it's Tanakh, I'm not sure. I think it's the five books. 50 mentions of leaving <coughs> Egypt. So, lo and behold, I counted up the letters of that verse of leaving Egypt. There's 50 letters. Again, that idea of a fractal, you know. It's, it's just, everything is like worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds, you know. And then, interestingly, the number of words is 13, which is, you know, 13 is Ava, that's love. 13 is also Echad, which is oneness, right? Because when we left... Egypt. This was a, just a great act of love, and it was also just indisputably after the ten plagues, which chipped away at all the 
false perceptions of the idea that there are other powers in the world. Everyone in the world saw very clearly there is only one power in the entire world. When, you know, to this day, to this day. So, so it's also 13 words. Um, so, so now we move forward. And, uh, and we move forward with the, with the understanding that, that, that the job isn't done yet. Because, remember, when Hashem put His Word into creation, the Word doesn't return unless it's, it's successfully fulfilled the desire of the one who spoke it. And the world that God created was a world of love, was a world of oneness, was a world of peace, right? And, and the world is still cycling through every other imaginable variation <laughs> until we get to that. But we're getting closer and closer and closer, and there's an, an inevitability to it because the word doesn't return until it's successfully completed the desire of God. And then what an awesome thing it's like to like, you know, I don't know if you've ever like, I'm sure there, there are different versions of this. I'm sure people who are into sailing know what this feels like. People who are into skateboarding knows what this feels like. I went parasailing one time, so I got a sense of what it feels like where you catch a wind. You catch a wind and then you just go. Right? So, so what, it, what it means is if we can sort of, so to speak, use our souls and just make a sail out of it, you can catch this wind which is blowing, which, is, which never stops blowing. But you got to make a sail for this wind. You make a sail for the wind out of your soul. You catch the wind and you just, we're just going to all sail together till we see the completion and just the true beauty and the oneness that exists. Amen. Amen. So this is one more teaching. Um, we're in the month of Shvat, and the, the letter of Shvat is the letter uh, Tzadik, and the Mazel, meaning the zodiac sign of Shvat, is is the bucket, like um, it correlates with Aquarius. Uh, it's called the Dili, That's that means bucket. And so the Mayor of Hashemesh says something very beautiful on this subject of miracles. We're talking about hidden miracles and revealed miracles. So kind of, how, how do you make miracles? So that's, <laughs> that's very relevant. So the Mayor of Hashemesh says something very, very beautiful. And of course, this all re- relates back to this idea of of fruit from the tree, as we know that the, the new year of fruit-bearing trees, that, that's, um, that's Shvat, and uh, we've been discussing that. So, so listen to this, something very amazing. He says that, that the bucket, that's, that's like your stomach. And, and so he's going to sh- talk about the interrelationship between the letter of the month, which, which is Tzadik, you know, which which is kind of a, like a play on words, because I, on the one hand, it's the name of a letter in the in the alphabet. On the other hand, it's also a word. 
uh, which means a, a holy person, right? So, so what's the relationship between the letter of the month and the the zodiac sign for the month? The relationship between the tzaddik and the bucket. So, like we say that he compares the, your 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 stomach to a bucket. So now listen to this. He says that the that the tzaddik has mastery over his bucket. Meaning to say that the the uh, uh, someone who's righteous, who's holy, has the ability to eat not with um, where their body overcomes their soul, but where the soul is still in charge, even even in the process of eating, and that a person who who exerts that type of mastery over their eating, that they're then able to use their their bucket to reach for the higher waters. These are the upper waters. This is sort of where um, miracles flow, you know, beyond nature, above nature. And to bring those waters, those higher waters, like when we were talking about with the letter Aleph, those upper waters down below. So so this is, this is very interesting. In other words, this is kind of like the idea of Yosef, who overcame his nature, and because he overcame his nature, the sea overcame its nature. So, so the tzaddik, remember that's the letter of the month of Shvat, has mastery over the bucket. That's, the, that's like Aquarius, that's the zodiac sign of, of Shvat. The tzaddik has mastery over his stomach, over his appetites, over his nature. And therefore he's able to use this bucket to reach and bring blessings from above down below. Now for some questions and answers. You just said that the word won't return until... I don't know how you phrase that. What is that? What do you mean the word won't return? So, so again, like when the, rain, when the rain falls, it doesn't, it doesn't return halfway down the sky and then it goes back up. Oh. It doesn't... It doesn't return, so to speak. It doesn't cease until it's finished its mission, which is to water the crops. So when God spoke his will into the world, the word will not stop. That energy that God imparted into the world will not cease, just like the rain coming down to the ground, until God's desire, which he expressed through his word, is realized in the world. Right, 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 right. I'm sorry. I, I think that I think that that was from the prophet, so I, yeah, yeah. I used it. But that, um, yeah. But but um, if I wasn't clear, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering if you could riff a little more on, on an idea, something that I heard this Shabbos that I never knew before, and it's just amazing. Uh, that when the sea split, apparently uh, there were also fruit trees that yes. sprung up for us. Right. Yeah. And that like blew my mind because I've been yeah. visualizing the sea splitting for many, many, many yeah. years. I didn't ever imagine that element, yes. that part of it. Um, and it seems to me uh, that it's a, a, a miracle within a miracle in the sense yes. that it's revealing both the open miracle of the sea yeah. splitting yeah. and the trees are like the concealed miracles. Like, right. hey, look, these are also miracles. Right, exactly. So, uh, but I wonder if I no, it sounds, no, it sounds like you've got a great, you've got a great understanding of it right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it, they both come together because they're both equally miraculous. And again, we, we tend to think of nature 
this is how I, I started the talk, the whole idea of context. You need context. So what I mean by that, when I, I don't really properly explain it. What does it mean that you need context? So for instance, there's a, a rabbi who I heard explain it, uh, Hanukh Teller. He, he says that he, he has this thing that he tells himself, um, act two, act two. So what, is, what does act two mean? So he says, when you see someone acting, say, um, inappropriately or bizarrely, right? Like someone is, you're waiting online at the bank and someone is all of a sudden yelling at the teller. Like, why would you be yelling at a teller? Like, why would you do that? So you can say, that person's crazy or whatever it is. Or you can say, act two, meaning you don't know what act one is. There's an act one there, which is obviously there's some degree of desperation where some bill is due or whatever it is, and the bank is not allowing the funds to go through for whatever reason. And so the person is yelling. So, <clears throat> so if you say, if you look at people when, when they're behaving in a strange way, and you say to yourself, act two, then all of a sudden you say, there's some context for this behavior. I just didn't attend, I, I came into the play late. I missed the whole setup for this drama, which is now exploding. Right? So that's, that's context, right? You need context. However, what I'm saying is, is that context, while it's necessary, context can also blind you. So what do I mean by that? Because who says there has to be, we're using the, the idea of a theater. You walked into the theater late. You walked in at Act 2, you missed Act 1. Who says there has to be a theater? <laughs> who has to say that there's anything called a play? Who says there's anything that a world that the theater takes place in? Who says that there's anything that... Uh, that the, that the idea of narrative is what we think it's supremely logical. Why, why should that be supremely logical? God hardwired our brains to accept something called logic. Logic is a creation. We all sort of, so to speak, are on the same page because God set our brains with this thing called logic. Right? But that was his invention. That was God's invention. So that's what I mean that while you need context, you have to know what was act one. Why is the person yelling at the teller, right? At the same time, though, you also have to not be blinded by context, thinking that, of course there's a theater, because that theater was built in 1938, because theater was very popular at that point. So lots of theaters were built at that time. So you can be completely blinded by context and never get the deeper, more macro picture that none of those things actually have to exist at all. Okay, so the idea of fruit trees, you know, popping up when the sea is splitting, that, that is a medrash where the rabbis are teaching. Maybe that happened, by the way. But on the, on, on, on the smallest level, the rabbis are teaching that nature itself is an open miracle akin to splitting of the sea. Right? Remember, when it comes to midrashim, Sometimes they happened. Sometimes maybe they're just metaphors. But it doesn't matter because they're all true. They're all 100% true. Meaning to say they're all coming to teach a truth. Now maybe that truth actually transpired in the, in the, in the situation itself as, as, as explained. Maybe it didn't, but that's irrelevant. The relevant point is the teaching that's contained within it, and that is always true. 
right? If you can understand what the teaching is properly. You know, along those lines, I want to say something else, which is um, there, there are certain events that are sort of like legendary events in, 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 uh, in Jewish history. And then, like, for instance, um, like the golem, the, the Maharal's golem, right? By the way, they talk about golems in the Gomorrah and say that, like, I think it's Rabbi Zerah made a golem. But, so, the, 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 the topic of golems is much older than, than the Maharal, okay? So, there would be people who tell you the Maharal made a golem a thousand percent. Other people say, well, wait a second, maybe it's a legend that sprung up around the, 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 the Maharal. What, what I want to tell you is that it doesn't matter. And let me, let me explain to you why. And there's a, a great story, one of my favorite stories, actually, about the Chofetz Chaim. So the Chofetz Chaim, of course, was one of the greatest tzaddikim um, from, you know, approximately 100 years ago. And one of his students was being persecuted by the Russian government. And so they asked the Chofetz Chaim, will you come to court to testify on behalf of this person so that people, they'll see you and they'll see, well, if you're a man of ultimate truth. The fact that you're in court and you're testifying about this person's character will be very meaningful. So the court, of course, he agreed. So the court date comes and the, the, the lawyer for the defense against the crooked, you know, Soviet government um, wanted to make sure that the judge fully understood the greatness of the Chovetz Chaim so that his testimony would, would have the impact that it ought to have. And so the lawyer is introducing the Chovetz Chaim and he's telling this great thing about him and that great thing about him and this great thing and that great thing and then the prosecuting attorney rises up and says, those are all lies. Right? And the Chofetz Chaim said, I agree that they're lies, but do they say these lies about you? Okay, so this is, this, is, this is very important. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. He said that when you study history, that the key thing often isn't, did it actually happen, did it not happen? The fact is that if they said these things about the person, that in itself is indicative of the person's greatness and what they thought of that person's stature. You see, so ultimately, did the Maharal make a golem? Did he, not, did he not make a golem? It doesn't matter. The point is, is that people thought that he was capable of making a golem. And by the way, maybe he did make the golem. Because he certainly was capable of making the golem. See, they say that about the Baal Shem Tov as well. You know, I heard in the name of the Sanzarebi Rebbe that, that anyone who believes all the stories of the Baal Shem Tov is a fool, and anyone who doesn't believe them is wicked. Right? Or, put another way, anyone who doesn't believe that he could have done them is a fool. Whether he did them or not. You see? So, so this is... This is a level of sophistication that you have to understand when you're dealing with these sources. Because some people are... They don't get it, and they think they're being very intellectual. They go, oh, that never happened. <laughs> what? You're not even appreciating what's going on, the dynamic that's going on. The fact that it's being said at all is indicative of something. 
That's indicative of something. That's the meaningful part. Yeah. Hi. Um, I've heard you talk about a couple of interrelated things that you talked about today. I've heard you talk about how, I've, you know, you said that the rain is going to get there, whether we're getting there with it. I've heard you use the, you could make it easy or you could make it hard analogy. Um, I've also heard you say that the reason we're here is because the world isn't finished yet. So I'm trying to reconcile those two ideas. If it's going anyway, right. what part do we play in that? Now, I, I, again, heard you say that it's not finished yet, but if it's going in a certain direction with right. or without us, what's our role in that? It, it seems right. to me that on our end, the incentive to finish the world is that there's an outcome that will either happen or not happen, depending on whether we do that right. or not. So I would see what I'm saying? Uh, totally, and thank you. It's, it's right on point. So I would add, what is at stake here ultimately is A, how fast it happens and how much suffering is, is, is eliminated from the process, right? And I would say another thing at, at, at stake is, is that the, the, the perfection of the world is going to happen, but, what, but, but your role in it is totally up for grabs. And that's contingent on your own free will. Ultimately, are you going to be a sort of like a very minor player? Or are you going to have a bigger role in it? And, and just, just on a, just looking at it another level. You see, we all live forever. Because, you know, our souls are eternal. Our souls are a piece of God. And our souls are going to access the higher realms. And with, by the way, a sense of self. In other words, we don't get our memories wiped out. We will remain us even after we leave our bodies. And, but the, you will be a vessel to hold a certain amount of light, of divine light, at the end of this 120 years, which is a work expedition. Life despite what every billboard and commercial tells you, is, is this is not a pleasure cruise. This is a work session. And this is why so many people are so confused by life today. Because they can't understand why they're not having more fun. And the answer is, is because that is an incorrect premise. This is a one long work session that's filled with delight and pleasure, but is not, that's not the premise, though. And as we get into a, um, a, a culture that evolves more and more into a pleasureocracy, <laughs> you know, we become more and more confused as to what the point of life is. It becomes utterly bewildering. But it's a work session with lots of wonderful things along the way. God will. So, so, how much we accomplish in our life determines how large a vessel 
we create to hold this light for the rest of eternity. As Rebetzin Friedman said so beautifully, she was quoting someone, life is your opportunity to decide what you want to do for all eternity. Right? So the number of mitzvahs that you do, divine service, will be in direct, actually more than direct, it will be the actual definition of how large a vessel to hold infinite light you become. So in other words, yes, the end, the word will not cease before it's completed. Creation will reach its finish line, which is perfection. That will happen. But we get to determine what our role is and what our destiny is, both on a selfless and, if you like, a selfish level as well. Right? Um, it says that... Um, which means that, that, that the, the, the rabbis actually encourage people to do things selfishly because they say if you, if you do it with um, an ulterior motive, but you keep on doing it, ultimately you, you will do it just purely for the sake of heaven. But first you have to kind of get yourself into it. And once you get into the rhythm of it, then you understand the depth of it, and then you begin to refine it. But from a starting point, it seems to me fully logical and totally appropriate that you would want the greatest eternity ever. Why wouldn't you want that? And that's totally valid. It's like 100% kosher. And then hopefully one evolves from there to an even higher level. But that already is a pretty high level. Very comforting. That gives me more time than I thought I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember when we hear Lech Lecha? When Avram heard Lech Lecha, he was seventy-five, and when Moshe was heard, was by the burning bush, he was eighty. So you know, you know, that's just good to keep in mind. I I heard uh, um, something before. Uh, yeah. Uh, this parsha. Oh, yes. Speaking of Muna, like yeah. the, uh, when when we when it went into the sea, like it didn't split until. It went up until the water was up right. to our nose. Yes. And like, um, and I think there was someone who went ahead. I forgot who yeah, it was. Yeah, Nachshon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he jumped in. Yeah. They say it didn't split until he jumped in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So that's it. You know, I, I heard something. I heard something beautiful because I asked my rabbi. I asked him, like, you know, we talked about just a, a few moments ago about the status of midrashim, like. Maybe the story happened, maybe it didn't, but there's, they're all true because they have a truth contained within them. And then, what is that truth? So I said, I asked about that, that midrash, because it is a midrash, about Nachshin jumping in and then the sea splitting. And I said, that's so understandable. And that's so, like, in some ways, unmiraculous. Why isn't that included in the Chumash? In other words, what is the status of that? Did that actually happen? Did it not happen? If it didn't happen, then that's fine. I just get the idea that sometimes you gotta, you got to make the leap. And that, 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 that desire to make the leap does sort of like trigger the next level. And so that's symbolized by someone jumping in. I get it. But I also fully get how someone of his greatness actually did jump in the water and it actually did split. I mean, on a, on a here and now, real, real-time thing, I totally get how that actually happened. So if it actually happened, 
My question is, why wasn't it included in the, in the Chumash, in the written Torah, seeing how it's a very likely thing, and maybe, maybe it did happen. So why wasn't it included? And he gave a very wonderful answer. He said, not everything is included in the Torah, meaning to say some things are too intimate to include in the Torah. And this gives you a whole different insight into the, in the Torah in terms of what's written and what's not written. And I'll, I'll, I'll just add this, you know, we're adults here, so we can just imagine. The details of intimacy are not included in the Torah. Why? That's the, 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 the perpetuation of the species, right? Should, shouldn't that be included? But it's not included. Why? Because there's a level of intimacy that's left out. Even though the entire thing is very intimate. But nonetheless, levels and levels and levels and levels. And so what he was trying to say was that this jumping into the sea, that this was a manifestation of closeness with God that that was already, you know, intimacy doesn't just have to be between a man and his wife. There's also intimacy between us and God. There's all sorts of intimacy that doesn't have to do with physical relations. And then this nakshan jumping into the sea was, a, was an aspect of intimacy that just out of sneeskite, just out of modesty, the Torah didn't include. It's, it's, you have to think about it. You have to think about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm trying to visualize what yeah. you were just talking about. Yeah. And I missed the name of Na- Nachshon. Nachshon. Yeah. Nachshon. Yeah, he was the head of the tribe of Yehuda. So is this simultaneous with Moshe raising his staff? I'm trying to picture the, the Right, layer. right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. It's a good question. I, I think that, um, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I never thought about it. Um, I guess they're saying that basically... It was all ready to happen, so maybe Moshe already had his staff up. Maybe the waters are ready to part, but they're not parting. Something's stopping it, and then he jumps in. You know, I, I guess that's how you would have to say it. I guess that's how you'd have to say it, um, because otherwise, if you say that he jumped in and then the water split and then Moshe rose his staff, that wouldn't make sense, right? So that's that's how I would order those events if you want to incorporate it as an actual event with what's actually written there. You know, by the way, just one more thing. You should just, again, know that God always, 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 always preserves free choice. Always. You're always going to have free choice whether to believe or not to believe, even in the face of an open miracle. And it says right in the Chumash itself, God blew an east wind the entire night and that separated the waters. So, in other words, the Torah itself is giving strength to those who will deny the Torah itself because it wants to preserve free choice so that you can say, oh, there was a weather event where it was, you know, it was like some form of a hurricane, whatever it is. I I don't know what it was. There was some weather event which split the sea. That's what it was. It wasn't Moshe. Timing was great. But in other words, even the Torah allows you to deny the Torah. 
and you see it in other places too, in the Torah, where where the wording, it's like it's like what? I mean, the whole premise of the Torah, the whole premise of Judaism, is 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 the oneness of God, and yet it says Breshis bara Elokim. Elokim is plural. That meaning that's a that that name. Grammatically speaking, suggests more than one God. The whole Torah is coming to tell you there's only one God. In fact, the most oft-quoted idea in the five books is against idol worship. The whole point of the Torah is that there's one God. The very first line of the Torah invites you to believe that there's more than one God. So, so in other words, it's 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 an amazing thing. The Torah is an amazing thing. And, and with that, a similar idea. How could it be that we're, we're talking about our greatest people, our greatest, greatest, greatest people, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, and talking about mistakes that they made? Isn't the whole point of this book to lionize these people and talk about how they're utterly perfect without any flaw whatsoever? And yet, it's talking about mistakes that they made. So the, the the Torah is an amazing construct. It's 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 not simple. It's not simple. You know, just just very quickly, just because I, I, I love it so much. The first letter of the Torah is the letter Bayes. And remember, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. The first letter is going to tell you so much. Bayes is the number two. It's the second letter of the alphabet. And that stands for free choice. Because I can do this. Or I can do that. In other words, the very foundation of the entire Torah, of the world, is built on free choice. You can do this or you can do that. It's up to you. But the end happens either way. The end happens either way. But we have free choice. How do you reconcile those things? They're both true. They're both true. I just had to add to yeah. what you were saying. Yeah. Yesterday you shared another, as usual, another profound idea, which was when you said, who are we, right? Remember that whole idea that you brought up? Right. That I think goes beautifully with what you were saying before. Yes, you know, I, you're, you're right. I'm glad you brought it up because as you were saying, I wanted to share it and, and I forgot to share it. So let me share it. So, so you were saying that... That the, that the end happens either way. So then if the end happens either way, then what is my role in it? So we have a, we have a big role in it. And, and hopefully I touched yeah, on it. So, so, but there's one more idea. There's one more idea. Which, um, you know, just kind of like, kind of just, uh, you know, adds. And I heard this from Rabbi Green, and I, I, it meant so much to me, I actually said it as part of my father's eulogy when, when he left the world. So... Which is that, what, what, who are you? Who are you? So you're not your body, because your body stays behind after 120, right? It gets buried. And you're not your soul, because your soul is a piece of God. So if you're not your body and you're not your soul, who are you? So the answer is, you are the sum total of the decisions you make in this world. In other words, what stands before the heavenly court after the end of each of our lives? You know, the decisions that you made. That's who you are. 
right? And that's what lasts forever, right? 